I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep. So I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel, Love Marriage. And this episode comes from a thing that you said, Sugi, when you were angry about politics, which is like- I'm never the, angry about politics. All the time now. <laughs> you said, we should do an episode on portrayals of the morally weak. Uh, maybe not exactly like that. That's how I say it to myself. Um <laughs> I don't remember what you were mad about, though. Do you I remember? don't remember either, but I keep picturing, for some reason, when I remember talking about this episode, I keep picturing Sean Spicer or maybe Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> I don't know which one. Um, Driving I along actually... in his little podium. I like that one. <laughs> exactly. Where she drove his podium around, around New York. It was amazing. Um, but I didn't think that we would actually do such an episode um, on portrayals of the Whirly Week, but well, here we are. And do you know... That Sean Spicer has published a book recently. Oh, God. Now I can't unknow it. Thanks so much. Yeah, speaking of shamelessness. All right, so for the second half of this episode, we have Margot Livesey, novelist and professor at the Iowa Writers Workshop, to talk to us about portrayals of the morally weak in literature. But first, we have journalist James Traub joining us to talk about his recent Atlantic column, Decency Loses Its Moral Force. Jim is a contributing editor at Foreign Policy. He's the author of six books of nonfiction, most recently John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit. He teaches classes in U.S. foreign policy at NYU. Jim, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Jim, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. We really enjoyed your piece, which you wrote in the wake of the hearings featuring FBI agent Peter Strzok. I wonder if, you can, if I can ask you to begin by reading a little bit of that article for us. So I'll start by just reading from the top. I'll read the first few paragraphs. When Louis Gohmert, the Republican representative from Texas, jabbed a forefinger at FBI agent Peter Strzok during last week's House Judiciary Committee hearings and asked, how many times did you look so innocent into your wife's eyes and lie to her? One of the Democrats in the room cried, have you no shame? The echo of Joseph Welch's question to Senator Joseph McCarthy at the 1954 Army McCarthy hearing seemed all too just. Just as McCarthy had targeted the U.S. Army as a nest of subversives, he claimed to know of 130 communists in its ranks, so Gomert and his colleagues hoped to use Strzok to undermine the credibility of the FBI in the eyes of the American people. But because shame does not operate today as it did 70 years ago, 
Last week's events could not possibly have had an outcome comparable to that of the Army hearings. McCarthy's popularity plummeted after millions of Americans watched his testimony live. His reputation never recovered from the imputation of indecency. It's unimaginable that Gohmert or Trey Gowdy or any of the chorus of defamers will suffer a similar loss of standing today. The Army-McCarthy hearings were a climactic national drama carried live on the Dumont network, while the Judiciary Committee hearings were just another in a long line of similar proceedings. But it would scarcely have mattered if the whole country had tuned in. In the era of President Donald Trump, shame has lost its moral force. Thank you so much. Uh, the historical parallel is striking, of course. And in, in the piece, you argue that decency served as a nonpartisan virtue of 1950s culture. And you draw a distinction that I found really interesting between decency and justice. And I was wondering how you began to think about that and about the evolution of shame in our culture. These two things, decency and justice, which, as you rightly say, I try to distinguish, I have sort of different streams. And I think I grew up with this notion of um, you mustn't be greedy or self-aggrandizing. Um, uh, you mustn't be cruel to others. You mustn't put your own interests ahead of others. Things that sort of fell under the um, category of how we behave towards each other, which is to say what it means to be decent. Now, justice, of course, is one of those big capital letter abstractions. It's a philosophical term. And again, I grew up in the late 1960s. I was born in 1954, the year of the Army McCarthy hearings. And so I think my kind of ideological position, some combination of Jewish universalism in the 1960s, uh, you know, built this big sense of, of, you know, what's just and unjust in me. And I, I suppose you could say my whole career has been dedicated to that question. But as I get older, I don't think this is at all unique to me, I think that the human virtues, that is to say, the how we behave towards each other questions, the ordinary virtues is the word some people use, seem more and more salient to me. And I'm probably less and less inclined to think that having the just answer, winning the just argument permits you to be indecent. And I guess I kind of fear more and more the consequences of losing our grip on decency. And of course, the, not just the election of Donald Trump, but I think in recent years, the kind of flaming indecency of American popular culture has brought this question to the fore. You, you mentioned Henry Fonda, and you talk about the, the, any film starring him, we get to see the quiet, undemonstrative heroism of the decent man. You know, could you talk a little bit more about that, sort of why you thought that particular fictional character was so important for the time that we're talking about? And maybe we could talk about some other characters that fit that line. I, I talked about Henry Fonda because I was trying to find figures from that mid-century period to remind people of what it meant to be decent. And the Henry Fonda character, really even more than his uh, Gary Cooper or Jimmy Stewart, who would be the other ones in that group, uh, always incarnated decency, which is to say he didn't have other virtues necessarily. He wasn't the smartest guy in the room. He wasn't the strongest guy in the room. He often was extremely not ambitious, but he had this sense of how to be right towards others. And I, I think I... When I first wrote it, I was thinking of his role in 12 Angry Men, 
Right. Uh, right. Where you have uh, 12 guys who don't know each other. They have different kind of politics. They come from different places, but they have been handed someone's life. And each one is revealed in their foibles. Some are timid. Some are bad. They're selfish. Some are cowardly. Um, uh, some are really kind of monstrous. And Henry Fonda is a little reserved in the beginning. He's an architect, I think. And he clearly, I mean, it's 1950. He's like a nice liberal guy. And there are elements in his speech that, um, you know, maybe you could have heard on West Wing. So I don't want to take this too far. But but his whole role is is we must withhold judgment and think carefully and consciously and not give way to our own prejudices and predispositions because of this large obligation we have. And so that was directing the listener not so much to a political point of view, to a left or right thing, but to something everybody would have recognized as being right. And part of the point I made in the piece is that the 1950s, the moment before everything broke apart in the 60s, was a, 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 a kind of consensual moment. Now, I say that, of course, in full knowledge that it was a time when uh, black people were treated as second-class citizens and indeed non-white, non-straight, non-male American citizens were. Uh, but there was this kind of foundational sense of what it means to do right by somebody. And movies, which could not stray very far from that mainstream view, were where that morality was embodied in the same way as in Victorian England, you would find that in Dickens or in Trollope. It's really interesting, you know, now, Sugi, I'd be interested to know if you just had the same experience, but we both studied with James Allen McPherson uh, at, the, at the University of Iowa. And when I was there, Jim was really, really interested in the Westerns. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he made me, I, I watched Henry Fonda for the first time with him, you know, um, in particular, the 1943 film, The Oxbow Incident, uh, which is similar to 12 Angry Men in the sense that Henry Fonda tries to prevent a lynching. And also the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which has it as a Jimmy Stewart movie. Um, and one of the things that was really important to him that he thought was you could learn from these movies that you're talking about from this same period was the idea of integrity, which I think is somewhat similar to this idea of decency that you're talking about. In other words, Jim's belief was that the characters who had integrity uh, were the same on the inside as the outside. In other words, they didn't have hidden motives, if, you know, and they would also live by a code. I was actually thinking of the ways in which your definition of decency tracks in some ways with more recent debates about civility. And that, I think, touches on, Whitney, what you were just saying about, I mean, Jim's notion that people with integrity were the same on the inside and the outside. And that sort of recent debate over civility, the idea that we should talk about politics in a polite manner, um, even if we're saying, even if people saying horrible things should be dealt with in a, in a quote unquote polite manner. Um, the idea that that is important, the See, civility like, debate. Think, really? Cause I kind of feel like, I don't know. I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I agree with that, yeah. but I think that right. The people who are promoting the idea of quote unquote civility are talking about the notion that people who hold beliefs abhorrent to them 
should be dealt with in ways that have sort of surface politeness. Well, if I, um, if I, I mean, I think, yeah, the, this, I mean, uh, the poly test question in a way can almost take you away from what we're talking about, right? Because obviously integrity uh, at times demands that you stand up for a painful truth. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we're talking about integrity, just to be really direct about that, you know, why is it a shame for the Republican senators to ask Peter Strzok about his affair? It's, it's, an, it's a shame because that affair has nothing to do with the investigation. It has nothing to do with his work. It has nothing to do with the affair at hand, um, the political affair at hand, that is. And it's really irrelevant. And, and what's more, it's a display of pretty stunning hypocrisy, as others have pointed out. Uh, you know, if you are really going to talk about infidelity, sexual improprieties, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, look at who's in the White House. Um, so I think, you know, asking Peter Strzok about how he, you know, is that is that how you lie to your wife is, is really a crock. This takes us into a slightly different direction, but I think it's very important in terms of the age we live in today, which is the notion that... Um, there is a truth external to our own wishes, uh, and that just because we believe a thing with passionate certainty does not make it right. And the intellectual humility which is required of us in order to recognize that we may be wrong and the other person may be right, is uh, it, it actually lies at the heart of John Stuart Mill's famous essay on liberty. And so if you want to think about what freedom of speech means in a liberal society. It does not mean, I think, polytests in the weak sense at all. It does mean the posture of intellectual humility, which says that it is only through the acceptance of the possibility of the rightness of the other uh, that it is possible for a society to collectively arrive at a truth. And when I think about those guys who were cross-examining Peter Strzok, the Republicans, uh, the sense of kind of prior certainty that they had, that is to say, it doesn't matter what Peter Strzok says. We know he's wrong. We know he stands for all that we deem evil. Now, of course, this is the posturing that goes on in any congressional hearing. You shouldn't expect it to be uh, an Athenian debating society. Nevertheless, that arrogance, that unwillingness to listen, and that sense that uh, we each come from existentially uh, unassailable positions, or at least existentially unbridgeable positions, uh, makes it almost impossible to have the intellectual foundations for a liberal democratic society. Right. I mean, and, and sort of taking that a step further, right, there's all of this. There have been, I think, a couple of articles talking about the ways in which people are not entering into arguments in good faith that you might, for example, reporters are reporting on things that are happening, facts, et cetera. And then there's a certain set of voters who don't care about them, um, who don't care about those facts. Jim wrote an essay in February also for The Atlantic, which um, references some of the the John Stuart Mill, et cetera, et cetera, that he was just mentioning. Um, and we'll link to that for our listeners. But um, I think that this sort of these crowds of people who are sort of hardening in their views and so are entering into arguments not for the sake of argument or thinking through an idea or for any reason other than perhaps the humiliation of the other person seems to me like an 
an increasing problem and yeah, something that's certainly contributing to the decline of decency and democracy. Well, I also make the argument in this piece, what's the connection between these two things we've just said? And it seems to me that that these uh, kind of homely virtues, like decency, the thing that you feel exposed when you are shamed, depend in turn on a certain kind of social consensus that is a sense that, you know, we all have these views, as, as I mentioned earlier. The moment that your sense of your own views reaches life and death existential proportions, well, then it becomes foolish to allow yourself to be deterred by these, you would say, uh, quibbling questions of decency and shame. Right. If we are fighting for life and death, then we cannot mm-hmm. allow ourselves to be deterred by shame. But I want to go back to one other thing, mm-hmm. which is the question of how, whether, whether this sense that you've just described, this kind of sense of respect for the other, extends to institutions as well as to individuals. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. So, because I just wrote a long piece, which will come out in what's called Democracy Journal in, I don't know, a month or two, about the attack on the judiciary at the state level, uh, on the, the attack on the autonomy of the judicial branch in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Kansas, all over the place, all not by a coincidence in Republican-dominated states. And what's, what's so frightening about that is that the whole premise of the role of the judiciary in a separation of powers system is that the judge is the one who doesn't have a personal stake or an ideological stake in the outcome. Of course, we know that's not really true in reality. But that is the role of the judiciary is to be the honest broker. If we no longer believe in the possibility of a principled neutrality, if we no longer believe there is any space. Uh... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Between the absolute truth and the utter falsehood of the other, then the idea that we should have respect for, deference towards this branch that incarnates the neutral principle, well, that comes to seem absurd. And I do say in the article, and I still do believe that this remains a kind of asymmetrical thing. That is to say, Democrats are still more willing to accept the idea of a neutral good, a neutral principle outside of themselves, whereas Republicans are more seized by the life and death um, stakes involved and therefore unwilling to accept the idea of neutral principle or neutral institution. How do you, this is the argument that I've had with numerous people. It's like, well, so what it, are those people who are who have abandoned this idea of a new, an exterior neutral principle? Can they be brought back into the fold, or are they just lost? And you just have to hope and deal with the, that there's a majority of the electorate that's going to operate the other way and try to win them over. Well, Wit, I guess I would have two different reactions. The hopeful reaction would be 
everything in life is temporary, no matter how permanent it seems. And, you know, a disease runs a course. And right now we're in an extreme. <laughs> so people are going to die. That's what, that's, <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Disease, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, what I really meant is the temperature would go down, not that it would become fatal. Uh, we, it could uh, age out. There is that. There is that. But uh, I don't think I want to be associated with that idea in a, on a podcast that others can listen to. Um, and so, you know, this, this too shall pass. The thing that I fear, because I'm in the middle of writing, I'm almost done with my book about liberalism. And the part of liberalism that I think is most poisoned is what I call cognitive liberalism, though I guess you could call it epistemological liberalism. And that is this whole notion of uh, the acceptance of the possibility of the meeting ground of reasoned debate, the acceptance of the idea of reason, the acceptance of the idea of fact. That strikes me as so metaphysical that once it is lost, uh, I don't know quite how it's regained. It is not a world that we have. I mean, we've been here before. You could say, I guess, you know, uh, in in moments of populist authoritarianism, both in this country, you know, and Germany and God knows where else. Russia. But because of, uh, yes, Russia today. But But that illustrates in part the power of modern technology combined with the eternal wish of cynical political opportunists to uh, inveigle people away from that common space. Those two things in combination seem to me really lethal. I mean, that's why I find, uh, I think that it's notable, the struck, you know, hearing which caused you to write this piece is important also because it is about the Russia investigation. And in fact, the, 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 the thing that makes me so uncomfortable about the president's Helsinki uh, press conference and his closeness to Putin is just that idea that we we all understand intuitively and some of us you know explicitly that Russia is operating on a system that devalues fact and is relies on the devaluation of fact in order to to consolidate power and we are trying to preserve that system of fact in America and the president is really against it you know that's what it feels like to me. Well, yes. And so, you know, it, it, it may seem naive to think that a president is in some sense a role model. But of course, in the United States, you know, we don't have a parliamentary system. The president is this king-like figure. And he does shape yeah. unconsciously more than consciously our habits of thought and behavior. And, you know, those of us who are maybe a little too besotted with Barack Obama, as I was, we were that way in part because we thought here is a man who models a, a deep commitment to facts and to rationality and to hard thought. But it's not just he's not just a mathematician. There's a moral core to all that. Uh, and so the thought that that model has given way to the model of a person who cannot see a distinction between what's good for him and what's good for the world and who cannot see a distinction between a thing he would wish is true, and the thing is true, and that half the people in the country voted for him, that is a very, very disheartening thing. I mean, I'm, I'm 63, and nothing that has happened in my adult lifetime, and that includes Richard Nixon and so much else, uh, has discouraged me remotely as much as this has. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about. Um, my family is Sri Lankan, and I write mostly about Sri Lanka and watching the way that fact and common understandings of even just the most basic events have eroded there, in part because the news is reported in different languages, and sometimes the same story will get reported different ways um, by different language presses. The way that that's eroded kind of common conversation mm-hmm. um, has been really... I don't know that I have an additive for that. Mm. Um, when we were trading emails about this episode earlier uh, about portrayals of the morally weak, you wrote to me about Orwell, and now you're talking about Trump in the way that that you're talking about um, his failure to distinguish between what's good for him and what's good for the world. That's so well put. Um, are there fictional characters? who you would turn to to try to understand him or to try to understand how the GOP has slid past these these common notions of decency? Uh, well, you know, the I guess the obvious ones are, you know, figures like the uh, the Huey Long figure of all the king's men. Um, That's Sugi's favorite book on this subject. Uh, <laughs> I have to. I'm, There's I some more complicated. I think all the king's men is, it, though it's in no way the greatest American novel. To me, in mm. some ways, it is the great American novel. And you know, and Jack Burton uh, is. Uh, I hadn't thought about that till just now. Jack Burton, who is our narrator and kind of uh, the reader's, you know, liaison to the story. He is a story about a man who, beginning idealistically, hitches himself to this powerful figure and utterly loses himself, loses his his moorings with the person that he was. And so that's, you know, it's an interesting example of that. When I mentioned Orwell and Waugh, I think I was thinking of the following thing, that these are two figures who were ideologically the opposite, right? Orwell was a committed socialist. Wall was something like a committed reactionary, a kind of royalist. Mm-hmm. Both of them, however, use the word decency a lot. And oh, that's interesting. The, 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 I remember when I read Wall's Put Out No More Flags trilogy about the war in, in the Balkans, the, the World War II in the Balkans, the character, Guy Crouchback, because he's an archaic person, thus the name Crouchback, um, has this code that he lives by such that when he is wronged, he will not say anything. You know, there's a kind of stoicism in this character, which is his personal code of decency amidst the unspeakable indecency of a savage war. Uh, in the case of Orwell, whom I write about in my liberalism book, uh, he he uses the word decency all the time. And in the following way, for example, he says in an essay uh, about his experience in the Spanish Civil War, he said, if someone said to me, what did you go to fight against? I would say fascism. If they said to me, what did you go to fight for? He would say, he said, I would say decency. And what he meant by that was that there is something um, self-evident about decency that can't be said to be self-evident about social democracy, socialism, ju- justice. Those are all debatable arguments. But for Orwell, there was a fundamental sense of 
you don't mistreat people. You don't have a system in which the powerful can squash the powerless. That's indecent. And so I guess, again, like Henry Fonda in 12 Angry Men, there is certainly an ideological component. You know, there's a kind of social democracy to his decency. But he would also say that in the end, the only thing you can rely on are these human attributes. And if you think about 1984, for that matter, where it turns out everybody is a turncoat, the only source of even hope's too strong a word, the kind of only pole of positivity are the proles. Proles are not allowed to engage in any of the activities of the of the dominating class, all they have is their ancient patterns of decent behavior. Uh, And that, I think, for Orwell, was his source of hope in what he saw as an unspeakable darkness. Well, the thing that I would add to that, and the the way that that your notion of decency connects to our idea of thinking about moral weakness, you know, is that there's a difference between somebody who... uh, well, well we, the president, I don't think of him as a morally weak person because he knows exactly what he's doing. But I do think or doesn't know better. But I do feel like somebody like um, uh, Paul Ryan does know better. And Paul Ryan knows that he's doing things that, uh, or agreeing to policies that he actually understands are indecent. And he's choosing to allow them to pass because he feels it to be politically expedient. To me, that's the definition of a kind of moral weakness that seems to be sort of rampant right now. And he's more like Jack Burton. Yeah, that's – yes, when you brought up Jack Burton, that's signed, who I was thinking of. Yeah. He signed on. And all the guys in the Trump administration and women now, you know. It Nikki is. Haley I mean, knows I better. Do think, I think that as a kind of whatever the opposite of a profile in courage is, or a profile <laughs> of shamefulness, uh, the fact that the only Republicans who have been prepared to say what you know so many of them believe underneath are those who no longer have a stake. And so, you know, that that and, and by the way, Paul Ryan could be such a person. He's retiring. He, he could speak more honestly, but he won't. And um, yeah, I don't so know. could Flake. So could a number of senators. No, no, I think I think we need to say Jeff Flake has been a, 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 a an honest voice. And, of course, John McCain has been an honest voice. I'd like Bob, them to do more. See, that's what I think is the difference. I think them speaking do. is not as strong as doing. But but what do you what, what are they going to do? Uh, I think they could bring – they could – How could they throw a spoke in the wheels? In, 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 in specific cases of legislation, I mean, there's bills that they could propose or things that they could not vote for. They could say, hey, we're not going to vote for this Supreme Court nominee unless we get X. All you need is two or three people to from the I Republican think, side right, to, to stop almost court, any the Supreme Court nominee. You're right. That would be the one example. I think in other cases there haven't been that many cases where they have where you can imagine them making a difference. And so yes, the Supreme Court nominee is a really interesting one. Though I think by virtue of nominating Brett Kavanaugh, who obviously checks all the boxes of propriety, though he has views that you know, you and I would consider appalling. Um, uh, Trump has probably made it harder. I mean, look, those guys, they don't disagree with Brett Kavanaugh. They agree with Brett yeah, Kavanaugh. That's the problem. The, difficult, the difficulties <laughs> would be for people like Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, uh, who are uh, who don't have those views of abortion. 
and are Republicans and do want to get reelected. So, you know, if, if you were writing a novel about this, then clearly you would cast as your main character a person in the Susan Collins position who had to who upon whom painful moral choices were forced right. and who would who would know the, the weight of, of what she was deciding. And so there are a few people who were in that position. And yet no one has come forward as the character you'd want to cast in your novel or movie because there's nobody who has been willing to pay the price. There was that moment it, when McCain turned his thumb down. That, I liked that McCain moment. Pays the price. McCain is dying. <laughs> I mean, you know that. Uh, That's no, what it's going to take. Pay the price means I may lose, right. and I would rather lose than shame myself. I was also struck by in your piece. Your you you know you stated reluctance to venerate the FBI. Um, and then also your your notion of them as sort of these, I don't know, almost archaic holders of values. And we had an earlier episode where we were talking about the ways in which we look at the Mueller investigation and think about it with this sort of romantic notion that, you know, Robert Mueller's going to swoop in and save us all. You know, this could one man speak the truth? in a decent fashion and, you know, seek in this selfless way, possibly at great cost to himself, um, you know, this, this, this truth that could actually save us. And then, um, our guest, Matt Johnson, who sort of was like, that person is not coming. That person well, is not well, coming to but, save you us. Know, Sugi, so if we go back to the movie in our head, I mean, the answer to who the movie would be about would be either Bob Mueller or Jim Comey. And so right. here's the weird situation, that you have these guys who are lawmen, you know, who are G-men, um, you know, who are certainly quite conservative. But if you were to ask, who's the Henry Fonda here? There is no question. They're basically FBI agents. You know, yeah. Peter Strzok. Comey. I mean, I thought Comey's testimony might be in, in sort of like the way you're describing Mueller, you know, was a way of breaking that fever. And of course, I was completely wrong. They all said, you know, Comey's just proved now that he's just a, a no good liar. And Comey probably didn't help the cause too much by becoming sort of a publicity hound. Yeah, I but think I, that was a, that that changed him for me in it, certain it, ways. It was a mistake. It, I, it was a mistake. But you do feel uh, that, you know, it may be that Trump derangement syndrome is not a complete fiction. Uh, and and a guy like Comey, precisely because he I believe he's an honorable man. I believe that the incredible damage he did to Hillary Clinton was not because he's reckless. It was not because he didn't like Hillary Clinton as a possible presidential candidate. It was, alas, because he, he made a terrible judgment call, in my view, that his professional integrity required him to do what he did. And in the same way, his professional integrity required him to do what he did towards Trump. He's the same guy in both cases, and in the outcome in both cases, the outcome has been the opposite in effect, which I think show in a way, if you want to sort of think about where it is that how it is that these questions of decency and honor stand apart from ideology and politics, uh, Comey's an interesting example. 
out of his sense of decency and professional integrity, he did a thing that was a catastrophe from the point of view of any Democrat. And then he turned around and did a thing that was a catastrophe from the point of view of Trump supporters. He would tell you, I'm the same guy. I acted out of the same motives. I think to me, Mueller's more attractive. And, and the, but the sense is also that he from a casting point of view. Yeah, I mean, but also, but also the point. I mean, the, the 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 difference as we've been sort of talking about this idea, like, what does it mean to be uh, quiet and do a thing and not receive credit for it? You know, what does it mean to not advertise your moral your your moralness? That's what Comey sort of started to do to a certain extent to me. But you know, like, Mueller's yeah, just yeah, doing this. Investigation. He never responds. Well, meanwhile, Trump is just lying about him constantly, putting out these tweets, claiming all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's like you have like an ongoing battle between two archetypal ways of dealing with problems. And and I don't know who's going to win. People are sort of looking at midterm elections like it's going to be like this is going to like it's going to be the rapture or something. I mean, I just don't. Um, and I think, you know, and after that, when that happens, when we all reach that cathartic moment, then how what will the next point be that we look towards? What will the next point be? And time has begun to function for me in an, like in a different way in the U.S. than it did before, because I'm not sure how to measure the future. Jim. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the show with us. We love reading your pieces, and we'll be looking forward to your book. Well, thank you. It was really a pleasure for me. Now we're excited to mar- welcome Margot Livesey to the show. Margot is the author of eight marvelous award-winning novels, including the best-selling The Flight of Gemma Hardy, Eva Moves the Furniture, and Criminals. She has a new book of essays out on the writing process called The Hidden Machinery, and, and we are here, at least at the beginning, to talk about her most recent novel, Mercury, which the Boston Globe describes as the story of one man's austere endeavor to hold himself to account. Welcome to the show, Margo. Hello, Wit and Sugi. It's so nice to be here. Well, it's a special treat for us to have you with us. Um, so happy that you've joined us. The I know we're being all Mercury. professional about this, but, you know, Margot was my teacher way back in the day, and we are such good friends, and it's so lovely to have you here to break, to <laughs> yeah, break ranks. Yeah, was. <laughs> <laughs> and Sugi was my beloved colleague for much too short a time. That was so fun. Um, in the fall of 2016, Margot and I were at the Iowa Writers Workshop at the same time teaching and um, had many wonderful conversations about books. And, and that was actually around the time that Mercury came out. And um, it's a real pleasure to to have you with us to talk about that wonderful, wonderful book today. Um, so, yes, uh, I'm attempting to resume my professional my professional demeanor, but I'm sort of just delighted that we've managed to get you on. Um the character from Mercury that the review refers to, um, that bit that we just quoted, is Donald, who's an ophthalmologist who grew up in Britain. But as the book begins, he's been living for many, many years in Massachusetts. And he's perhaps to a fault, just kind of honest and decent, and probably not, as the quote that Witt mentioned suggests, a member of the morally weak. Um, so that was why we thought we would actually ask you to read to us about his wife, Viv. Which is which is a significant pleasure because although I loved writing about Donald, a repressed Scottish person very dear to my heart, <laughs> it was um, it was exhilarating to follow Viv into significantly bad behaviour, and I felt like I'd enlarged my life in writing about her. The morally weak um, American. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> what I've been trying to get to for 20 years. Uh, um, the novel is, is set outside Boston and um, follows a fairly short period in the life of Donald, an ophthalmologist, as you just said, Sugi, and his wife, Viv, who is a passionate equestrian. And um, it, the novel really begins when a, a magnificent horse named Mercury arrives at the stables that um, Viv runs with her good friend, Claudia. And I'm just going to, what I'm going to read comes from the opening chapter in which Donald is telling us about his and Viv's life before Mercury. One of the things that drew me to Viv, you will not see much evidence of it in this narrative, was that she made me laugh. She's the only person I know well who calls me Don. We've been married for nine years and have two children, aged 10 and 8. At the wedding reception, Viv, already six months pregnant with Trina, carried Marcus instead of a bouquet. Our parents were at that time, all four, still alive. The year before Marcus was born, I qualified as an ophthalmologist in Massachusetts. But four years later, when Trina was 14 months old, I gave up practicing surgery and we moved out of Boston to be closer to my parents. One unexpected consequence of the move was that Viv, who had loved horses as a teenager, began to ride more often. Her old friend Claudia lived nearby and ran a stable that belonged to her great aunt. One day, as she knelt to tie Trina's shoes, Viv announced that Claudia had suggested they run Windy Hill Stables together. I knew at once, from the way she focused on Trina's shoelaces, that she had already agreed. One of the things I first admired about Viv was her impulsiveness. She was born saying, yes, and I was born saying, let me figure that out. The three of us, Viv, Claudia and I, met with Claudia's accountant, who made it clear that even in a good season, Viv would earn a small fraction of her current salary working in mutual funds. While the accountant went over the numbers, Viv and Claudia exchanged the kind of look that might have passed between members of Shackleton's expedition as he described the challenges ahead. What did they care about horrendous odds? They were bound for glory. But after the accountant had packed up her spreadsheets and Claudia had gone home to the house she shared with her great aunt, Viv turned to me. You have to say, Don, if you don't want me to do this. It was never part of our deal for you to earn all the money. She'd spent most of our second date describing Nutmeg, the horse she rode as a girl in Ann Arbor. What I recall, even now, more than a decade later, are not so much the details, his chestnut coat and four white socks, how he whinnied at the sight of her, but the wistfulness with which she recounted them. When I asked if she still rode, she said, just enough to know how bad I've gotten. We had both had previous relationships, but this was the only one Viv cared to describe. You could say I'd been duly warned. Oh, thank you. I love that passage because uh, political weakness is not the only form of moral weakness. You know, and one of the things I love about Viv as a portrait is that, as from this passage, she seems so promising on the outside. She's she's giving up mutual funds to go ride horses. That seems like a good thing. And yet, this is setting up a sort of 
all kinds of bad things just sort of descend from this decision that you just read about, her decision to work at the stables. Could you kind of talk about the moral weakness that Viv displays in the novel or, or else defend her if you think I'm wrong in my assessment? Well, I, I would like to defend her in some ways because I, I do admire her ambition and the way she goes for what she wants and doesn't allow motherhood to smother her, that right. she's determined to, to pursue her dream of being a, an Olympic-class athlete. And that there's something to me very, very admirable about that. What a what, of course, I think is less admirable are the choices she makes as she begins to become more and more concerned that someone is trying to harm her precious horse and how she begins to think that the ends justify almost any means. I wonder if we need to define this term that I sort of I, that I think I was throwing around while reading the news, you know, the morally weak. Uh, but in terms of literature, a morally weak character isn't the same as a villain. I mean, Ahab is a villain, but he's not morally weak. And a character like the narrator of The Good, good Soldier knows the difference between good and evil and would like to do good, but fails to act on that knowledge. So I wonder what you think the definition of being morally weak even is like is there some other way that we should be we should be thinking about it is it is it cowardice or paranoia or we think of iago as being a villain mm-hmm. and we think of othello as being morally weak right because he so quickly falls into iago's traps and so easily believes bad things about desdemona and I suppose in Hamlet, we think of Hamlet as in some ways, for all his reasoning, being morally weak, while Gertrude and Claudius are evil, but but not not weak. <laughs> right. We're coming back um, to Shakespeare as our touchstone for all things. Um, did you think about Viv as as? Okay, this is her weakness. Her, you know, her ambition is going to be also her uh, cause this sort of moral decay on her part. No, I did. I, I suppose what I thought about it was the idea of her having some Achilles heel or or fatal flaw, um, which is something that in, I learned about in seminars on Shakespeare at university when F. R. Leavis was a kind of god. Although it feels to me like. When you're talking about a morally weak person, there is some other option that they could have been. You know, like Viv doesn't have to go as overboard as she does in her horsemanship. No, I think that's really key that when we think about someone being morally weak, we feel they, they could be better or they could do otherwise. Whereas I think the really evil person, it begins to feel like, no, they almost couldn't do otherwise. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you and Sugi and like get your nominations for other characters in literature who might fit this description as we're outlining. And are you happy with this definition, Sugi? Do you have anything else you want to add? Yeah. I mean, I guess I was thinking about, I don't know, like when we think about Othello, I guess we're thinking in, in, on some level perhaps about, or even about Viv on some level about selfishness as well. And But I think that that notion of um, could you do something different? I mean, I, of course, was looking at the administration and thinking about the morally weak, but perhaps that distinction between the morally weak and the evil is really helpful. I think, um, 
I think guilt's part of it, and like deceit is part of it. Like Viv hides what mm-hmm. she's doing from her husband, and I think right. that's part of the calculation of what makes me feel like she's a morally weak person. She knows that she's doing something wrong and is hurting someone who loves her. There are pe- pe- people. Uh, in the world and in literature who are evil who I want to shout at and say that they are morally weak but actually they're not morally weak they're just villains <laughs> and then sometimes people are, are just muddled like um, there's a wonderful story by Ruth Pryor Jabvala, The Interview um, in which this young man describes in the first person his attempt to get a job and go to this interview and um, you, you, as you read, the, the enormous pleasure is his level of self-deception and how yes. he's prepared to live off his family for, for all eternity rather than actually exert himself. Yeah, I think self-deception is also part of it. And that reminds me of, because uh, Margot, you mentioned me in an email when we were, when we were setting up this episode, uh, another example of a, 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 you nominated a, a, the narrator from James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, which I thought was a brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, and I find a lot of parallels between him and the narrator in Ford's novel. But maybe you could talk to us more specifically about why that character came to mind for you. Oh, I think David in in Baldwin's Giovanni's Room is just one of the most heartbreaking characters because he does appreciate Giovanni, and and that's those some of those early scenes where where the electricity is flowing between them. There's one scene where they're walking down the street, walking to Giovanni's room, and they're tossing cherries back and forth yeah. between them. I just find that so radiant and so heartbreaking. And, it, you know, he knows he's behaving badly. He knows that he's failing Giovanni's love and joy. And those passages where he's waiting for Giovanni to die are just excruciating. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I thought one of the, I mean, I guess the point that I, that I chime with what, what you're talking about is that uh, he has the capacity to feel, uh, you know, love and, and understand and, and like be in tune with his world. And then he allows that, he allows that to be lost. You know, he doesn't fight for it. Though, of course, fighting for that love would, as Baldwin makes clear, mean fighting against, heroically, his society's prejudices. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that that does make sense. And in fact, when I was thinking about your question, I, I thought about your novels. I thought about Emma Fowler in The Good Lieutenant Wit and about Yalini in Love Marriage. And I, I was trying to think about, are, are they morally weak? I mean, they make mistakes, but I, I, I'm not sure I would call, I thought they were rather robust morally. <laughs> No. <laughs> but but I wondered what the two of you would say oh, about your 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 heroines. Suki, you go first. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's fair. Um, I guess um, Yanni is, I think, often at least trying to do the right thing. Um, is interested in notions of what the right thing is, um, and that is a lot of her curiosity throughout that book is to just figure out some people think that the right thing is this and have very fixed notions of it. And other people think been telling a different story and she's sort of trying to, trying to read her own life in a more morally rigorous manner. I don't, I, and she's, I think 
in the end, fairly successful at doing that. Um, even if it's ultimately she can't get everyone into quite the, the spot she would like them to. Um, but yeah, people, people definitely on different moral paths um, and, and trying to figure out how they can reconcile their notions of morality. But morality is definitely a big part of it. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a thing that I'm really interested in reading and writing about and maybe is one of the reasons that I keep... Would you consider her uncle to, from the, who was in the Tamil Tigers yes. to be a morally yeah. weak character? Yeah, that's what I was wondering too. Um, I think he's someone who sort of emer- who sort of shows up and then is interested in figuring out at the end of his life if what he did was correct. And I think um, telling a version of the story that he believes is true, including some of his own failures and parts of his story that have been hidden from his niece, um, I think that's key to that's key to him attempting to redeem himself to sort of say, you know, I'm sort of sort of supposed to be this elder figure and sort of so respectable to you, but don't, don't think that everything I did was so pretty. He knows, mm-hmm. he knows, he yeah. might not have known when he was doing it, but he knows now. Um, and finding a way to sort of tell that story to someone who is interested, but also quite confused as a listener is um, I think part of his challenge. I don't think he's morally weak. I think he is. I think he's regretful. I would say um, that Emma Fowler from The Good Lieutenant is the, the problem for her is that she's a morally strong person in a place that's rewarding moral weakness, basically. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's, the, a, that's a yeah, that's a great way of putting it. The war it. in Iraq yeah. is not a place where people who were morally had strong moral convictions were rewarded because the. The, the reasoning for the war and the entire uh, raison d'etre for the, the soldiers there was not morally clear. And so it was extremely difficult if you were a person with a moral clarity. And so eventually her, her uh, moral strength is that it, it keeps running into put, being put in positions that where she, she doesn't have any good choices and she continues to make the best choices that she ha- can in order. And then finally... Having made a number of choices that lead her down a path that's increasingly dark, she has to just sort of turn off her moral light. That's what I think happens to her in the book. So when you were writing that, or Margot, when you were writing Viv, um, how did those characters change for you from early drafts to later drafts, specifically with in relation to morality? Well, I think one, one thing that both your answers re- reflect is is something that we all three find interesting, which is that people apply different moral yardsticks in different arenas that um, maybe it's fine to cheat on your taxes, but not so fine to treat to cheat on your partner. Um, <laughs> maybe it's fine to steal from um, a shop. Well, if you're the president, not- you can do both. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, we all have different at different moralities for different arenas, and I I find that another fascinating aspect of the morally weak character. Where does their weakness come out, and and where do they remain actually quite strong? Like Othello, you know, he would never behave badly on the field of battle. Well, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like. Um, in fiction, I feel like what is judged morally is often very different than what ha- than how we judge things in politics, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody, like, okay, so you talked about Othello, like his his p- 
political life as a soldier, he would never lose a battle, for instance, right? But in his personal life, there's some weakness, right? He has much more complicated problems. You could say the same thing for someone like John F. Kennedy or even, you know, Martin Luther King, right? And it's like the way that novels judge characters is so different than the way people are judged in the public sphere. You know, it's the personal part, the way we tr- people treat their intimates that novels seem to prize sort of more than anything. I wonder what you guys thought about that. I thought that was was extremely interesting, and I, I once rather exhaustingly began to go through hundreds and hundreds of books, thinking, "Is that true? Is that true?" And I think I think you're right. I think the novel is so far is mostly at its strongest when it's when it's in the private arena rather than the public arena. So, Sue, and when I oh, go ahead. Oh, and just when I think about exceptions to that, I mean, I've taught, um, Margo, the semester that you and I taught together, I was teaching a, a, a seminar on political fiction that I've taught in Minnesota, too. And one of the books I sometimes assign is All the King's Men, in part because it has you know, a very clear description of American political process and life. And it does have a character who... Um, who declines through his participation in political life. But when I think about the books that do portray political life, it's hard for that decline to seem that interesting. It seems to me like there's a few categories. There's the character who is kind of wily and participating in the system's destruction and knows that it's happening and is sort of sitting in the corner cackling a little bit. Um, Then there's the character who's just really naive and is participating, but doesn't know that they are being used in that way. And I think I could see yeah. that in in the, the Pen Warren as well as um, lots of other books. And then there's the character who is resisting with all of their effort and is probably not successful. And I think that all three of those as dramatic situations just have like, they have limited mileage. Yeah, um, because it's kind of a stereotype. Yeah. Hmm. I still want to go back, though, and get your nominations for other candidates who are morally weak characters in fiction. Um, If you want, I'll start with my list that I had. Uh, Okay. I thought of, well, Margo, you mentioned this, so uh, maybe it's stealing from you, but you were right in that all the characters, almost everyone whom the narrator interacts with in The Invisible Man is a good example of a morally weak character. Flannery O'Connor is good at morally weak characters. Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought yeah. the entire family in a good man is hard to find. It's like it's a they're all just morally weak, you know. That's why they get killed, um, you know. And, yeah. And I thought that also I think that Jonathan Franzen is particularly good at portraying morally weak characters, and Patty Berglund from Free Freedom is a good example of yeah. that kind of character. Um, you're good at it too, by the way. I, I mean, I can think of other characters like Jonathan from. Uh, the Missing World, you know, yeah. is a really good example of that. He's, a, he's also a gaslighter in a term that wasn't even in vogue when that, you know, book came out and now is. Um, so those were, the, those were the people that I thought of. I thought of um, uh, the narrator in ZZ Packer's story, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. Ah, yeah. Um, because she doesn't quite have the courage of her convictions in certain key moments, and I've always loved the ambiguity of the story. Um, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Yeah. Uh, a very, I mean, a book that just keeps turning and turning. Um, I sort of... Um, uh, and I, I, I sort of, and then felt badly that I'd sort of 
a poor Adela quested in Passage to India, because I think because <laughs> I think finally she actually rises magnificently to the occasion and says, "No, no, Aziz didn't do it." Um, I do think. Take, go. I'm sorry to interrupt. Her. I was just thinking that made me think of this idea that. Sometimes characters can start off as morally weak, and then actually part of the plot will be that they recover from that moral weakness. Yeah, because it's a kind of illness that they can get over. Yeah. Can America get over it? <laughs> oh, America. Oh, oh, oh America. Um I thought of, I think I, I mentioned the Robert Penn Warren already. We did a, an episode recently on comics. I can't help but think of Magneto. Uh, you know, a character who goes through incredible trauma as a child, uh, survives the Holocaust, and then sort of begins to think that any any means to to the end that he believes in. So I just want to point out, of, Sugi, that it's it's. I'm really glad that you're citing a Marvel Comics character in this particular <laughs> case. I was going to send you this article on the decline of Marvel. Anyway, that's a separate episode. Okay. Um, that, but so that this. We're to go back from political um, moral weakness to personal moral weakness. This personal kind of moral weakness is also defined of categories or creeds or political affiliations, and it appears on the left and the right. Um, it can be present in characters, and I would say in real people whose causes would appear to be unimpeachable, but the way they pursue those causes is deeply questionable. So, like Magneto, but or uh, because on this podcast we can go from Magneto to Mrs. Jellybee. Um, Mrs. Jellybee would totally take out (laughs) Magneto any second of the day. She's kind of, she's, she's got her eye on the prize. Mrs. Jellybee in Dickens' Bleak House, who is obsessed with raising money for Africans on its face a worthy cause. But she uses the cause as an excuse to ignore the humanity of the people and the poverty that actually around her. I can think of lots of people in, in real life, like Mrs. Jellyby, but that's not very helpful. <laughs> I, 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 what, what, what keeps dancing around the edges of my consciousness is this thing I read recently about the Milgram experiment. Um, you know, the famous one where they got people to shock people. Oh, yeah. And, um, but be, and what interested me was discovering that beforehand they had predicted that between one and three percent of um, their of subjects would would turn up the dial, and in actuality, um, over sixty five percent of people turned up the dial. And so, I'm interested in the idea that moral weakness might also be infectious. Um, something that we catch from each other and that characters catch from each other. Look, people fall in line. You know, you and I, uh, uh, the three of us are all pretty much on the left and we have certain things that we all believe as a group with the left, right? And But but people will, will are really loath to separate from what the group is doing, you know, mm-hmm. even and they'll use people can use what the group is doing to excuse all kinds of bad moral behavior in their personal life. It's like a protection. As long as you swim with the group, you're good. And I think that's something that literature can get at. Yeah, no, very, very much so. And um, it leads to that part that you mentioned in your notes about how a crisis for Donald is when he's a schoolboy and his friend Robert is being taunted by the other boys and Donald doesn't step up to help him. 
Yeah. And I think that the moment when you have to move from being a bystander to being an actor is so difficult for people. Um, and it becomes a moment actually where you're often sort of like, oh, I understand why that person didn't act. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what does that understanding transform itself into? Is that one of the ways that it becomes contagious as you were talking about? Um, I'm, I wonder now, you know, there's sort of all of this discussion about when do we intervene when we see, say, just like another person being harassed on the street because of their identity in some way? Um, are you the person who steps up and says something or are you, are you not? And sort of when do you decide that it's, um, that it's your job to do it when, when you think someone else is going to do it or when you just think you simply can't risk your own safety. And I think a lot of people are trying to learn new habits of bravery and we haven't needed as much, or many people I think haven't needed as much practice um, as we now feel that we do. And so it's interesting to see that the way that that scene kind of um, calls on those themes. And I think, uh, I mean, for me as someone writing about Sri Lanka, I think I see a lot of the same things in both sort of the way that the state has handled certain narratives and the way that the tigers have handled certain narratives, the, the way that people will excuse certain things that either the tigers or the state did because um, sort of, oh, every like sort of everyone, which just as you were saying, everyone on that on that side did it. Um, that's what that side did. So if I was with that side, then that's sort of a thing I'm going to look away from. Uh, and that is sort of a larger version of the same scene. So, Margo, we, we were hoping you could le- read us one last passage from Mercury, and it's it's actually uh, right where Donald is comparing himself uh, to Robert, his friend, uh, morally. Um, and uh, I thought it would be interesting for us to just talk about that before we close out. Cool. Um, Donald um, has a childhood friend, Robert, from whom he is separated when he moves to America at the age of 10. And this is him thinking back to an early scene with Robert. Robert, like my father, had an immediate sense of justice, whereas I tacked back and forth between various arguments, on the one hand, on the other, and sometimes hid from decisions. Exhibit A, Robert. Exhibit B, Ruth. Exhibit C, Jack and Viv. When our family was running smoothly, in that period after Viv began working at Windy Hill and before my father got so ill, Viv used to tease me about my caution. She seemed to make decisions effortlessly. Let's take the train to Portland. Let's go to the movies. That shirt is perfect. Shooting Jack, although accidental, was the result of a long line of decisions. Yeah, and Jack is a is a very close friend of uh, of Donald's, uh, and we're not. I guess we won't spoil who shoots him or how he gets shot, but um, that's what that's referring to. And the interesting thing about that passage is that um, I started to wonder, like, what is it that saves Donald from being morally weak? Is it the awareness of wrongdoing and the feeling of guilt? even for this long past event with Robert that we talked about that, that's described right before the passage you read? Or is it that he has to act at some point? And it's only the decision to act in the end that counts, not the feeling of or awareness of guilt. Well, I, th- I think it connects back to what Sugi was just saying about how we, we need to 
we suddenly find ourselves, many of us, in a situation where we need to practice courage or practice bravery in a way that we haven't had to do so before. And I know there's that cliche or bumper sticker where people say, say doing nothing is still a, a decision. But in the early parts of, of the novel, Donald like sort of like Lord Jim, he you know he fails to step forward. He fails to just in that split second. He doesn't say what needs to be said or do what needs to be done, and he is he is tormented by that. And and finally, with a little help from from his friend, he does finally rise to the occasion of action. And so, I would say he does move from being morally weak and aware of his moral weakness to being aware of his moral weakness and trying to rectify it. And it seems important that that act has cost, right? And I think that's also related to what you were saying, Sugi. You know, like it's not really moral strength to like say how much you oppose somebody's policy on Twitter, you know? No. But it, but it is moral strength when you have to do a thing that's going to cost you, and 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 you may never get recoup that cost. Yeah. And people may never see that you paid it. Right. Yes. No. Uh, that that part of not being honored seems for some act or decision seems really important as well. Wow. Well. I hope that we can all redeem ourselves. <laughs> like we're ending on this dark note. Well, if but... we do, we can't talk about it on the podcast because it has to go unacknowledged. It has to be a private act. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we're going to sign off and be really morally good now. Um, but Margot, um, such an amazing, amazing pleasure to have you with us. Um, and I hope that we can have you back sometime. And, and um, I love this book. So such a treat. Thank well, you. Thank you both for this conversation and for your wonderful novels, which have been enlarged my moral life. And I love the idea of, of the complexity of, of moral weakness. It makes me want to sit down and write 10 more books immediately. Please do. Please do. We'll be looking forward to reading them. Thank you. Bye-bye, Margot. Bye-bye. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. We want to give a shout out to our sibling podcast on the LitHub Network, A Phone Call from Paul, which features Paul Holdengraber of the New York Public Library in conversation with the best writers of our time. His next interview will be with Samin Rushdie out on August 16th. It's a great show and you can find it on the LitHub homepage under the tab Writing Life. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Our intern producers are Aaron Saxon and Kevin Coder. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast is listed under the news tab. Post a link to the books we referenced this week on our LitHub show page and on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading.